Hey, we're glad you're here today as our children make their way out of here uh, <clears throat> to be with Miss Rhonda <clears throat> and our children's workers. I'm very thankful for our children's workers. I, I want to give you guys a heads up as a parent that uh, we really want you guys for safety purposes to know who's here and how uh, uh, we don't want to deliver a child to a wrong parent, but we want you guys to check in your children uh, upstairs prior to the service. So all of our check-in will goes through our preschool desk. Even uh, those older kids that aren't in preschool, the check-in goes right to that desk. If you're a guest here today, maybe you've been visiting, you have children, if you will come just a little bit early, check your children in there at the desk. That way we know uh, uh, you'll be given a name tag and our, your children will be given a name tag and that way we know for sure that we're delivering right children to the right parents and uh, so if you'll help us out that will be great glad you're here today if you got a Bible turn with me to the book of Ruth to the book of Ruth uh, we finished up the book of Philippians last Sunday and I plan my plan is to start um, to start the, a series next Sunday um, I wanted to start it this Sunday. It did not happen. It's not happening. Um, but I want to start a series starting next Sunday and preach one message per minor prophet. Those books of the Bible that we never turn to. And, uh, and so I just want to preach a sermon per minor prophet that will carry us close to Christmas time where we will turn and start talking about Advent. And, uh, and so that's the plan. I want to start that next Sunday and hopefully we will and so today we have a little bit of a uh, of a warmed up sermon that I preached a couple of weeks ago on a Wednesday night. Wednesday nights we're going through the book of Ruth and it's just a wonderful book. It's one of my favorite books of the Bible. It's very short. If you've never read the book of Ruth you can sit down and read the whole book in one sitting. It's just a wonderful story uh, in the history of, uh, of, the, of the Hebrew people during a time that the judges rule. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, there's a book uh, prior to the book of Ruth called Judges. kind of gives you the backdrop of where this story falls in. It's a period of about 400 years when the judges ruled during, during that time. Uh, if you're a Wednesday nighter, you're going to hear some of the things, some of the things that have been brought out the last three weeks. We're, we've been in the book of Ruth, and uh, we'll continue that this Wednesday. But, uh, but, but this story is one that has so much emotion behind it. It's really a story of how God brings new life into a family. And so if you're here today and you come from a broken family or you're walking through brokenness, and you're going, how in the world is God going to, or what in the world is God going to do? How is he going to, 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 uh, to bring restoration? He may not bring restoration like you want it, but if you will lean in towards God with your life, you will begin to see uh, a sense of redemption take place, a newness that will take place. This is a, a book of, uh, uh, where, where, we where we deal with a family that's grieving, we deal with widows who, who potentially are about to live in poverty. And this is really a book that deals with decision-making to make moves of God. 
how to move with the Lord, where to move with the Lord, when to move, when not to move. And certainly those decisions are, are fairly difficult in our life when, when we're thinking about moving. Maybe it's a, a physical move, moving houses, moving locations, a job move. Uh, um, uh, there are all sorts of moves of the Lord that we have to deal with. Ruth deals with, this book deals with that. It's a story of death and grief. Maybe you're here dealing with grief over death. The book of Ruth deals with that. One of the characters in this story, the mom of the family, the matriarch of the family, Naomi, she is, uh, she's going to deal with, 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 with extreme grief over her husband and her two children dying. And now she is a widow, and now she's an elderly widow. How is she going to be taken care of? Who's going to take care of her? She doesn't have a man in her life to take care of her. How is God going to provide? And in the midst of all of that, she's bitter. She's bitter toward God. What I think is so beautiful about this story, and it's often overlooked, is how faithful God is to Naomi, who, who walks in bitterness for, for the first part of this book. How faithful God is to a, to a bitter woman who has been served a bad deal by her husband. So God becomes faithful to her, and she begins to see that. And, and, and then in the middle of this story filled with tragedy, there's a love story. And what the love story represents, and we're not going to be able to get into all of this today, and if you want to hear more about this, you're going to have to come on a Wednesday night and, and, and hear the follow-up on these messages. But this is just a, an incredible story, and let me just pause and say right here, there's not a person here who's never made a major decision without, without struggling to consult God and forgetting to consult God. And maybe you're here today and you're about to make a major decision in your life and you have not consulted the Lord. <clears throat> and maybe you're here not by accident for the Lord to speak some wisdom into your life to say, hang tight for a minute. Wrestle with me, the Lord. Wrestle with Him in this decision making. Because even Christians can make terrible decisions outside of God's will. And then the Lord will begin to draw us back into his will, and we will have to play cleanup or ask him to play cleanup into, the li into our lives, into the consequences that we have brought onto our life. Let's read uh, chapter number one. Let's read the first five verses. We'll stop there this morning. Listen to the word of God. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to so sojourn in the country of Moab. Bethlehem means House of bread, by the way. House of bread. They lived in a place that was supposed to be providing for them. House of bread. Quick Sunday school answer. Who else is from Bethlehem? Jesus, right? Jesus. And there are major implications about this story uh, to Jesus Christ. And so there's a famine in the land in Bethlehem. And so they move. They pick up shop and they move to Moab. 50, 60 miles away across the desert. It's not too, too far. Maybe a couple of weeks' journey across the desert. And then this man, his name is Elimelech. Uh, go back. Go back one screen for me. Uh, he moved and his wife and his two sons. The man's name was Elimelech. And the name of his wife is Naomi. Naomi's name means pleasant or sweet. And it's beautiful. The problem is Elimelech's going to make a decision to move his family without consulting God. 
and it'll be very costly, and Naomi will eventually change her name to bitterness, bitterness. And then the names of her two sons were Malon and Kilion, and they were, uh, help me out, Powers, we, had, we did it three weeks ago, Ephrathites, sounds great to me, from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. Then her two sons took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Moabite wife was Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without the woman, Naomi, was left without her sons and her husband. Lord God, help us to understand your word. Teach us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. The context of Ruth chapter uh, number one, or the context of this book, looking at verse one, places the story in the days of the judges. Uh, the previous book talks about the days of the judges. It's a period of 400 years in Jewish history of general rebellion and anarchy, lawlessness and chaos ruled the land. Don't be confused by the name judges like Judge Judy and Judge Joe Brown ruled the land and you had to go before them. That's not how it worked in those days. Um, there were not judges who ruled with an iron fist. Things would happen. Chaos would take place. The Lord would raise up someone, a hero in the land, just for a brief period of time to bring order to the chaos. But it was extreme anarchy across the land. Judges, chapter 17, verse 6 also, Judges closes, the book of Judges closes with 21 verse 25 with the same verse. Here, here it is. This is, if, if you want to know how, how this time period was, a, a time period of 400 years with no king, Judges is described, the time period is described as everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, on the surface, that sounds fantastic. The problem is everyone's right is different. And so picture really the movie like, like Tombstone, you know, where clans rule and, and, and tribes rule and groups that have the most strength and the most power rule there. Picture, I'm going old school, like not the new schools. I, I never watched those. I'm talking about old school. Mad Max, anybody remember that movie, right? Used to come on WTTO when I was like uh, uh, like six years old, and I would watch when my parents wouldn't let me, didn't know that I was watching Mad Max. Who was in that? Help me out. Yes, Mel Gibson. Young Mel Gibson was in that, right? Just complete anarchy across the land. And, and, and let me just stop here and say this. I praise God this is not the way it is in our country right now. Could you imagine a time when there was no law at all, period? No standard to live by. And even though God's standard was there, no one submitted their lives to it. These were dark days for Israel. This is what people want, by the way, in our culture. Someone uh, recently on my Facebook uh, news feed posted uh, something up that said something to the effect of, Stop expecting others to live according to your own personal morality. That sounds good on the surface. Stop expecting others to live according to your own morality. That sounds good in such a way. Hey, students, listen to me. Here's another way to say it. You have your truth. I have my truth. And this is the way people live in our land. 
But there's not your truth or my truth or your morality or my morality. There's just truth. God's word is truth. This, this is a time period where people lived according to their own truth. What they thought was right, they did it. Even if it was wrong, because they thought it was right. And everyone went, great, that's how we'll live. And it was complete chaos. You see, God's word is truth. And, and they, they wouldn't listen to God's word. They, they rebelled against God's word, excuse me. And, and, and I wanted to comment on that Facebook status. I, I'm not sure that I have a personal morality. There's just God's standard that's laid out. And this is what's right and this is what's wrong. And when I look at God's standard, I've seen that I've broken God's standard. I can't even keep God's standard. And so instead of running from God, I run to God and say, please help me. Please help me. These were dark days during the book of Ruth. Very few people are running to God during these days. And so in the middle of this is a famine. And Elimelech the dad makes a costly decision based off of a bad season. He makes a costly decision based off of a bad season. Elimelech is the dad in this narrative. His name means God is my king. He, he isn't living as though God is his king. He is married to Naomi. Her name means gentle or pleasant or sweet. They have two sons. One his name is Malon. One his name is Kilion. One Malon means sickness, by the way. Kilion means wasting away, by the way. So like, like terrible names for kids here. Not sure you want to name your kids sickness and wasting. I don't know. And, uh, but they did. And, and, and these names are going to play out true because they, they move to Moab because of a famine. In the Old Testament, a famine was often an evidence of God's discipline. Because of obedience, God would send a famine. There are several examples of this that we could look at. Don't have time this morning, but it's there. And it's just strange to me that there's a famine in Bethlehem, a place that means house of bread. What's happening is that the godly in Bethlehem are suffering because of the sin of the ungodly. And sometimes that happens to us. Not all disasters are God's discipline or God's judgment. I remember when Hurricane Katrina hit, there was a classic uh, Christian uh, uh, response across the, the media of God has judged New Orleans for their sin. The problem with that was uh, uh, Bourbon Street didn't even get hit hard at all uh, with the hurricane. There were, there were wonderful godly people who suffered there. Sometimes natural disasters, sometimes the discipline of, uh, uh, it has nothing to do with sin or the discipline of God. It just so happens that we live in a fallen world that is in need of, of redemption when Jesus Christ comes back. Sometimes bad things just happen. But then sometimes, and this is one, that famine is linked to the disobedience of God's people. And because of that, even the godly are struggling. Warren Wearsby says we can do uh, one of three things when the famine comes in our life. We can endure it, escape it, or enlist it. If we endure it, if we endure trials, it leads to bitterness. If we escape trials, we will miss God's purposes in our life. 
But if we enlist our trials over to God, then we will learn what God is doing and He will accomplish His glory in our life. Elimelech tries to escape the famine. He really embodies the the spiritual temperature of his day. He did what was right in his own eyes and saw that there was a famine and looked over 50, 60 miles to Moab and the pasture looked greener on the other side. And he went. There is no struggling and wrestling with God in the text. He doesn't pray about it. He doesn't even talk to his wife about it. Men, just because you have conversations with your wife about moves in your family does not mean that your wife runs the household. This is a wonderful time for the two to talk things over about what's going on. And it's quite possible, it's quite possible that Naomi may would have spoken some wisdom into her husband. Proverbs 31 That woman is extremely wise. She's extremely busy with her hands, bringing in an income into the household. This is a woman in Proverbs 31 that that I don't even want to preach on Mother's Day because who in the world, what woman can live up to her? But she pours wisdom into her family. In fact, the, 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 the men stand at the gate and they look at her husband and call him blessed because of her. There's no conversation that takes place between Elimelech and Naomi. No wrestling of God with God in the text about no prayer in the text about this move. He did what was right in his own eyes. He makes a move based off of a season with no wrestling with God. We just sing about it. When winter fades, I know that springtime will come. Some of you are in a winter right now and you're, you're, you're walking with God as best that you can. You're wrestling with God in prayer. And though you have doubts and though you're struggling and you keep going back to God and keep going back to God, please hear me. Don't leave winter too soon for a springtime somewhere else. Elimelech is a nominal Jew at best. How do we know this? Because he has no regard for the Old Testament law in talking about Moab. There's no prayer in him about Moab. There's no no looking at Old Testament scriptures about Moab. For example, in the book of Deuteronomy, God said, Hey, Jewish people, do not live in the land of Moab. Don't go there. Don't intermarry in the land of Moab. There is none of this in the text. Elimelech would have said he's Jewish, but he's nominal Jewish at best. You know what nominal means? Somebody give me an example. What is nominal Christianity? Anybody in the house today? What is nominal Christianity? I say nominal uh, Judaism. What is nominal Christianity? Anybody want to give that an answer in here? Anybody? Say it again. Average. Okay. What does that look like? Nominal Christianity. What is it? In name only. So I would stamp the name of Jesus on my life and say that I'm Christian, but none of my life really follows Jesus. Kyle Eidelman writes a book called Not a Fan. We did it in a small group one time, a really good book. This is what Kyle Eidelman says about fans versus followers. Fans don't mind him, the Lord, doing a little touch-up work in our lives, but Jesus wants complete renovation. Fans come to Jesus thinking about a tune-up, but Jesus is thinking about an overhaul. 
Fans think a little bit, uh, think a little makeup is fine, but Jesus is thinking makeover. Fans think a little decorating is required, but Jesus wants a complete remodel. Fans want Jesus to inspire them, but Jesus wants to interfere with their lives. You see, nominal Christianity would, would create a religion how I see it, how I want, ultimately making me my own God because it's about me and what I want. That is not, and then place Jesus on top of that. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. That is nominal Christianity. There is no walking with God. There is no understanding who he is and, who, and, and what he wants in his word. It is just what I want, when I want it, and then I will stamp Jesus on the top of it. Elimelech is nominal at best. Watch this. They move to Moab in order to live, but they all die. Elimelech dies, his sons die. Elimelech leaves his wife in poverty. Naomi will be angry with God. Not angry with her husband, by the way, who makes the decision, but she becomes angry with, with the Lord. She changes her name to bitterness. This is a very sad story. And I'm here to tell you guys, particularly the men, when you make decisions without consulting God, the consequences for your family will always be costly. And I think one of the saddest things about this story, not only is Naomi, and I don't have time to deal with her today, but I think one of the saddest things about this story is that ultimately Elimelech will leave no faith legacy. His last name stops after five verses in the text. When he dies and his children die, there is no faith legacy to carry on the name of the Lord and his family. Men, when we refuse to trust God with our lives, when we desire a nominal faith, we set our families up for spiritual ruin. And we will not leave behind any type of legacy. How sad would it be? Listen to me. Men. How sad would it be? I'm talking to men in here. It's, it's one of the reasons that we do man church. It's one of the reasons we probably had, I don't know, close to 70 men this past week uh, under Bible study uh, talking about God's word, talk, being challenged about our passion for Christ. It's one of the reasons that we started man church. And, and, and if you say, well, where's women church? We had women church Wednesday night. It was me and all women in here, and it was fantastic. And so, uh, so we would love to have you ladies on Wednesday night as well. And, and, but it's one of the reasons that we have isolated men to talk about these things because men don't get into groups to be challenged with the Word of God. Hang in here with me. How sad would it be if you leave your kids a financial inheritance and make them rich but godless? Because that's the way some of us think. It's the way our parents thought. 
We'll scrimp and we'll save and we'll save and we'll save and we'll save because one day, one day, I want to just, just unload a bank load onto my children and change their lives forever because they're going to have children and I want to change their lives forever. Please hear me. You very well may do that and leave your kids godless because you invested more into your 401k to leave a legacy than you did your spiritual life into your children to leave a legacy. Why don't you play out your family a little bit? What if, what if, preachers have been talking about Jesus coming back today, today, today. They've been doing that at least the last 400 years, at least. And here we are 400 years later. What if Jesus does not come back tomorrow? I pray that he does. But what if he doesn't? Will there be Stevenses on the face of the earth that love God with all their heart 200 years from now? Lord, I hope so. Why don't we pray for those things? I'll tell you why. Because we aren't concerned with looking past the age of 65 or 70 or 80. We're not concerned with the future generation of God's kingdom. We're concerned, more concerned about the right now. And as parents and grand grandparents are included in this, you need to remember that small seeds grow big trees. Trees that you'll never sit under. We're planting woods, folks. We're planting, we're planting forests right now. And what if Christ doesn't come back for years and years and years? Will there be people in your family that love God with all their heart? Plant those seeds now. You say, well, how do we do that? Certainly not what Elimelech does. I'll tell you, one of the ways the Jewish people did this, and when you read about it in the Old Testament, one of the ways they did it, and in, even in the church history the last 2,000 years, this is what you do. Are you ready? This is what you do. You meet in your homes and talk about Jesus, and then you gather with God's people and talk about Jesus, and then you do that over and 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 over again. And there are days where it's boring, but you do it. And there are days that you feel like it's a chore, but you do it. And then there are days you're filled with passion, and you do it. And then there are days that you're, that, that you're just wrestling with God, but you still come to His Word, and you gather in your homes, and you talk about Jesus, and you lead your children in prayer. Grandparents, you lead your grandchildren in prayer. You talk about the things that God has done in your life, and you do that in your home. And then we gather at church, and we talk about what God's doing, and we talk about His Word, and we sing, and we do these things over and over and over and over and over again. And watch this. God takes that. Some of y'all think that the moves of God that have been in the history, particularly in our country, the Great Awakenings, have happened because of wonderful great preachers. And God has given us wonderful great preachers to stand on a great stage and tens of thousands of people gather in stadiums. And this is revival. No. Revival starts in your home. God takes that. And he moves. And he does this from generation to generation to generation. This is what God does. This is who we have been called to be. Elimelech is not living this out. And it costs him very dearly. It costs him his family. So where's the new life 
in the text. Where is the new life in the text? Well, we see the new life in the text through the lives of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. We don't have time to get to Boaz especially, but Boaz will be a Christ figure that steps up and provides for these women. He's going to marry Ruth, and it's absolutely a beautiful story. But Naomi and Ruth, we see that new life begins to take place when the sovereign God begins to work on their heart, and there's something wonderful in the text, verse 6 especially, verse 6, the first good decision that this family has made in the last 10 years, and it took place when the husband dies and the kids die. And the very first good decision, the very first right thing of the text, Naomi, when she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people in Bethlehem, by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. Now, Naomi can't see it. It's going to take her a while to see it. But this is one of the first right decisions that they have made in the last 10 years. You're going to see this same thing play out in, in Ruth's life. Look at verses 16 and 18 of the text. Verse 16 and 18 of the text, Ruth gives both daughter-in-laws the opportunity to go back home uh, to Moab. It's a pagan area. It's a pagan land. They worship all sorts of false gods there. She gives them opportunity. Hey, hey, hey women, y'all are young. Go find husbands. Go back to your family. Orpah goes back. But Ruth, something happens in the heart of Ruth. Watch this, verse 16. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. And where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. Watch this. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. We have Naomi returning home and we have Ruth deciding that Naomi's people will be her people and her God, her God. And what we begin to see take place in the text is that there is a repentance, a returning back to what is known as true. It happens in Naomi's life and then Ruth sees. She has this moment of redemption and new life begins to take place. She sees that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is greater than any God she has ever worshipped. He is so great that she is willing to leave everything that she has been taught, which is right about serving false gods. She's willing to leave her family. She's willing to travel two weeks across a desert to the house of bread. And she's willing to serve Naomi, her mother-in-law, until the Lord would say no. She says, she says this, if I quit serving Naomi, may the Lord do so to me. May I live in poverty. Till death parts us. What we have, brothers and sisters, in the text are people who have seen wrong decisions made and they return or they move toward the Lord. And brothers and sisters, there's a biblical word for that and the word is repentance. And if you're here today and you have made a mess of your life, which in some sense that's every single one of us, 
but you have made a mess of your life making terrible decisions because you have not wrestled with God. You have not consulted him on how to live and you have chose to move to Moab because it looks green over there and where you were looks, uh, uh, looks dry and barren. And you got to Moab and you realized, you know what? This place ain't all that it seems. In fact, it has done nothing but fill my life up with decay and rot and grief and bitterness and death. Maybe, maybe it's time to return to the house of bread. The house of bread is a wonderful place. It's a wonderful place. In fact, I would rather live in the house of bread where we didn't have no bread. This past week, I make Sawyer and Sam's lunches for school. And it always thrills my soul to go into the kitchen. And me and Aaron have forgotten to do the midweek grocery run. Normally we do a Friday grocery run or a Saturday grocery run. Every once in a while we do a Sunday grocery run. And sometimes, every once in a while, I get into a position where I walk into the kitchen. It's about 6 a.m. I've got getting a cup of coffee running. And I start pulling out sandwich bread, and Sam likes peanut butter, dry peanut butter sandwich. No jelly, dry peanut butter sandwich. That's what he likes with pretzels. I'm thinking, oh, my Lord. I'm like, Sam, do you drink anything at lunch? He went, no. Sometimes maybe I can take my water bottle. Sometimes I just don't drink anything. I'm like, how in the world can you eat peanut butter sandwiches and pretzels without anything to drink? But he does. He does. But every once in a while, when I go into that kitchen at 6 a.m. and I start pulling out bread, guess what? There ain't no bread. And if you want to watch a grown man pitch a little kid fit in the middle of the kitchen at 6 a.m. in the morning, let us not have any bread. Because guess what's not open at 6 a.m.? Dollar General. It's not. So now i got to throw clothes on because i got to throw clothes on and i got to get into the truck and i got to go down the street and invariably, I stop at Payne's down the road. And those women know when I come in about that early, it's either for bacon for man church or, I've, or, or, or we don't have any bread. And I say, hey, can I have two pieces of bread? And they go, you ran out of bread again, didn't you? And I go, yes, ma'am, I did. And so they put two pieces of bread in a Ziploc baggie, and then I walk out of the store and go make Sam a peanut butter sandwich. You better listen to me. I would rather live in the house of bread during a famine with no bread because I know God's people are there because I know God's there because I know my church is there because I know that the Lord has me where he needs me to be I, I'm just hungry I don't have any bread but I would rather live in the house of bread for a moment for a season with no bread than to look across the pasture at some place that looks green and let me move over there under my own flesh and my own strength. And, and, and Watch this. I would rather live and wrestle with God in a place that I know is right, but I don't know how God's going to provide than to move over there where I know God's people aren't, where I know God hasn't called me to be, but where I think I could be rich, where I think I could be well-fed, and where I think I could feed my family. I would rather live here with God and wrestle with Him than live over there in a place that I think that I could take care of myself. See, God's people, they, they lean on God, and, and Naomi repents. She returns back to the house of bread, and Ruth 
Ruth looks at Naomi and she, she sees that, 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 that she's going back. And Naomi, she turns to the Lord. Repentance is a beautiful thing. Wonderful. Repentance is not remorse. What time is it? 11.30. i got to shut it down. Repentance is not remorse. Another sermon for another time, but repentance is not remorse. Remorse means I feel bad about it. But repentance is not only do I feel bad about it, but I got a change of mind. I turned my mind. I was, I was thinking this way and living this way, but now I think this way and live this way. Repentance is life-changing. The rich young ruler, he had remorse. He, 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 he heard Jesus Sell all your stuff, come follow me. How can I be, how can I have eternal life, Jesus? Sell all your stuff and come follow me. The Bible says that he walked away sad. He walked away sad. Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come. Pride keeps men from repenting. Pride keeps a man from submitting to the Lord. One of our elders had a conversation with someone in the community. They had this side combo. And they asked Brian, they said, Brian, I don't know if you're in here. I think I saw you a little while. They, they asked Brian, they said, Brian, how are you doing it? This brother's not in church. He's, he's not living for the Lord. And Brian chose the opportunity to share the gospel with this particular man. And this man looked at him. And I'm not sure how the conversation ended. But this man has not repented. Repentance is hard, brothers and sisters. Not just anybody will repent. You don't repent out of your own free will. It is a gift of the Spirit. When the Spirit lays out repentance to a man, that man has a decision to make. And sometimes repentance is too costly for men and women to make, and so they don't repent. They don't own up to what has ruined their life, that I have ruined my life, and here it is, and they won't repent of it. Instead, you know what they honestly think? Well... I've gotten this far. Maybe I can make some good decisions and get myself out of it. And you know what happens? You can't make good enough decisions to get yourself out of it. No, repentance brings it to the Lord and says, God, I, I've made a mess of my life. Will you fix me? Will you fix me? What we do is we live our life we make our decisions, and then we ask God to bless it. God, would you bless my sinful decisions? I didn't talk to you before, and I've made bad decisions, but now would you bless them? Y'all, that's the religion of the South. Nominal Christianity. I live, like, like I live life like I want to live. Stamp Jesus on it. You and I both know so many people who care nothing about the things of God. And when you get to talk to them, they go, oh yeah, I'm a blessed man. I'm a blessed man. Do you honestly think that saying I'm a blessed man gets anyone into heaven? Lost people all over our community know that they're blessed. They've had zero repentance. 
And I'm here to tell you, there will be no one in heaven who never repented. Every one of us will get there because we confessed our sin to God and we had a change of mind. Really quick and I'm done. Powers, come on. I'm serious. I'm really quick and I'm done. The beautiful part about this story is the redemption of Jesus, the redemption that Christ, what happens with Christ in this story. What's so beautiful about this story is that God takes a terrible decision by Elimelech, and yes, they die, but God takes this story and brings Ruth, a Moabite woman, and he brings her into the story of redemption Moab, folks, I don't, good grief, this is so good, 1136, do you know how Moab even came about? A horrific story in the book of Genesis, when Lot and his family leave Sodom and Gomorrah over that perversion, and you think, woohoo, they're great people, no, no. Because Lot hooks up with his daughters and gets them pregnant. That is a horrific story. Nasty. Terrible. Incestuous. And one of the daughters has a son named Moab. And what begins to take place over the centuries that that people group begins to form out of an incestuous relationship what begins to take place in that land is that God begins to write that sinful action and so out of an incestuous relationship fast forward there comes a woman named Ruth who gets saved Ruth meets Boaz Ruth and Boaz have a son Named Obed. Obed. Obed gets married, and him and his wife, they have a son named Jesse. Jesse gets married, and they have a son named David. And you begin to fast forward on down the line. We get the root of David being born in a town called the House of Bread. And his name is Jesus Christ. See, God never wastes pain and suffering. He never wastes it. Some of you have had a lot of pain and suffering in your life. Return to Bethlehem, the house of bread, and watch the Lord begin to restore things in your life. That's what God does. He heals brokenness. Jesus Christ comes. He's the Savior of the world. That's the story of redemption from this text. And if you will repent, Return to God, the mess that you have made. Give it a season. Watch God begin to restore and redeem, heal, put broken pieces back together. He he does it time and time and time again. There are stories all over here where God has healed broken people. If you're in here today, you say, Mike, I remember a time when my life was a mess and I repented and I have watched God over the years clean up my life. If that is you today, would you slip your hand up? Anybody in the house today? Absolutely. we got testimonies all over here. Maybe you're in the mess right now. Would you repent? Return to the Lord. Give it over to Him. Father God, we ask your blessings. 
ask your blessings over this invitation. Father, if there's someone here today that does not know you, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. Holy Spirit, would you do this in our lives, God? We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.